0: This evening we want to look at two items, the concept of the Day of the Lord in a broader Old Testament perspective, and then to look at the details of Zephaniah 1, 12 and 13. Now with respect to the overview of the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament, I have listed some of the places in the works of Gerhardus Voss where he discusses this matter and his discussion is uh, influential to my own assessment of the concept. Nonetheless, I will make some uh, departures from his remarks, so he can't claim credit for everything I'm doing. But for those of you that are interested, uh, this is extra uh, fertile and stimulating reading. Uh, I know there are those that do not find Voss um, that transparent. Uh, They argue that he is impossible to understand. I have never been able to understand such dismissal of such a great mind and a gifted writer. But nonetheless, uh, I sympathize with that complaint, though I do not agree with it, and encourage you to, uh, if you're interested, beard the lion, expand your horizons, challenge your brain, particularly those of you that are in the geriatric region as I am. It's good stimulus, you know. You have to keep the brain working. Voss will keep your brain working. He'll give you a workout. So you can notice that there are a number of places in his published works where he does address this issue of the day of the Lord. Now, it is a major part of Old Testament prophecy. And some of the passages are listed on your handout. We're going to focus particularly on Amos chapter 5. We'll look at Zephaniah 1 indirectly and as an aside, and Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 who picks up on the imagery. First of all, beginning with the obvious, namely that the day of the Lord comes, namely the coming of the day of the Lord, or the day of the Lord is coming, is... A declaration that God the Lord is coming. This is a declaration of the advent of the Lord God Himself. So one does not need to lose track of the fact that when the prophets talk about the day of the Lord is coming or it is near, this is an indication that the advent of God is near. God is going to come. He is going to come to Israel or Judah as the case may be. He is going to come upon the world as the case may be. So, <clears throat> we don't want to forget that this concept includes the general, broad, and even universal coming of the Lord himself, which has been fulfilled in the advent of God the Son, our Lord. That is, <clears throat> the shall we say, penultimate accomplishment or fulfillment of this idea in the Old Testament scriptures. For Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of God, and the Son of God is God. His coming is the coming of God. The day of the Lord comes when the Lord God comes in the person of his Son. Right, now with that general uh, idea of the coming of the day of the Lord, there is a specific Old Testament aspect or a specific Old Testament feature which is attached to this phrase or attached to this concept. That is, with the coming of God, the coming of the day of the Lord, there is attached a specific coming of the Messiah, of the Christ. Of the anointed of the Lord. Now, the Jewish religion in the first century AD, that is, the Jewish religion at the time of Jesus' public ministry, the Jewish religion of the first century argues that God comes with the Messiah. God comes with the Christ. But that Jewish religion does not confess that God comes as the Messiah. God comes as the Christ. This is a significant difference between Judaism and 1st century Christianity. Notice, however, that the Messiah and God are two distinct and separate beings in the Jewish conception. In addition, Jewish religion of the 1st century A.D., argues that the Messiah who comes, distinct from God, the Messiah who comes is a devout Jewish person. The Messiah is not a divine person. He is not God. Jewish religion would not comprehend such an idea unless it were put in front of its face and made evident, which it was, and you know the consequences. All right, so the Jewish idea of the coming of God or the coming of the day of the Lord is associated with the coming of his messianic messenger. And that messianic messenger is not a divine personality. All right, now in addition, in first century Jewish thought, that messianic person who comes, God endorsing him, God promoting him, that messianic person who comes is a national or political figure. This uh, notion is uh, he belongs to the earth. He belongs to the terrestrial arena. He belongs to the national, political, and utopian domain. Now I'm using utopian here in the sense of the Jewish expectation of a great golden age when the Messiah comes. That is, a utopian era in which the world will essentially be a kind of perfected environment, but it will be in a perfected environment dominated by a Jewish Messiah reigning from a national political capital with a power of a sword and a club over the earth. In Christian thought in the first century, The messianic person who arrives is universal and spiritual. He is a universal and spiritual figure. Christian eschatology, in distinction from Jewish eschatology, is celestial, not terrestrial. It is celestial in that it is a transcendent apolitical, that is non-political, and heavenly dimension, heavenly arena. All right, now, summing up what we've learned here so far in this first part of our outline about the coming of the Lord in the day of the Lord, in Jewish thought, Jesus of Nazareth could not be considered in any other sense than an impostor, a blasphemer, a mere man. Now, when I say mere man, you understand the word mere, only a man. Nothing more than a man, certainly not the Son of God in any divine sense. In fact, that's one of the reasons for which they put him to death. He claimed to be equal with God, John chapter 5, which makes him a criminal, which makes him worthy of death. He is not devout because he's claiming to be a blasphemer he is not god incarnate because only yahweh is god and he is not incarnate he is not innocent or sinless he is extremely guilty guilty of crimes against the torah against the whole uh, uh, tanakh which is the hebrew bible he is guilty of crimes against the hebrew people he is a guilty and uh, a guilty A criminal, not a sinless, theanthropic God-man. All right, now that indicates where the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity comes with respect to the day of the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming in the day of that advent, and who that person who comes in the day of the Lord happens to be. Is the Messiah very God incarnate? Or is he someone who stands alongside God as a mere human, political, nationalistic figure? Now, if you turn to Amos chapter 5 for a moment and look at verses 18 and 20. And when somebody uh, gets there, please read those two verses out. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 and And 20.
1: Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it?
0: Very good. Now, let's keep in mind that Amos is an 8th century BC prophet. He is talking about the day of the Lord coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel. He is a prophet. To Israel, the northern kingdom, he is not a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. (laughs) Therefore, when he's prophesying this coming of the day of the Lord, who is he or what is he describing is going to come and who is going to bring it this day of the Lord, which is darkness, not light. Assyria. Assyria, correct. The Assyrian Empire. And what are the Assyrians going to do, Marge? They're going to destroy the Northern Kingdom in what year? Seven twenty-two. And what city are they going to level? What is the capital of the Northern Kingdom? Samaria. Samaria. They're going to they're going to destroy Samaria. All right. So the Day of the Lord does come in the eighth century B.C. It comes upon. Uh, those that Amos suggests that it's going to come upon, namely the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. All right, now we go back to Zephaniah, our book in question, and we look at verse 7 of chapter 1 of Zephaniah. And once again, let's read out that verse. Anyone who has it, just go ahead and read
1: Be silent before the Sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited.
0: Thank you. Now, in this case, this is a 7th or 6th century B.C. prophet. That is, Zephaniah lives in the period of 640 B.C. and later. So his prediction of the day of the Lord being near is a reference to the day of the Lord coming when. 586 with whom, okay? Nebuchadnezzar in what empire? The Babylonian empire, and what are they going to destroy? They're going to destroy Jerusalem. So, the day of the Lord here as we can see from Amos and Zephaniah is, as a 17th century author put it, a temporal day in the history of divine judgment and the eschatological day, that is, the ultimate eschatological day of final judgment. Now, I'm addressing David's question from last week with this outline. That is, there is a now-not-yet aspect to the day of the Lord and its advent. It has a rolling, unfolding, proximate and consummate aspect. It signals itself in the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom. It signals itself in the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom. It signals itself in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth in Bethlehem of Judea. It signals itself in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It is a a day which rolls along with history, and in the history of redemption carries an ultimate climax in the parousia or the second coming of the Lord Jesus and the end of the world. All right, now, what kind of a day is it? You remember uh, when Dick read Amos 5.18, what kind of a day was it said to be? A day of darkness. It is not a day of what? Light. Very good. <clears throat> day is opposite to? It's either day or night. night. All right. So we'll turn ahead to First Thessalonians 5 because we want to see how the apostle uses this same imagery. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, keep your finger in Zephaniah 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, and whoever gets it, go ahead and read it out.
1: You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. All right, the imagery
0: of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament prophets is picked up by the Apostle Paul, and he brings it into the existential or experiential situation of those in the Church at Thessalonica. So here he actually expresses this opposition between day and night. the day is verse 5 light the night is verse 5 darkness. All right so your blanks there on number number three first day of darkness. It is not light. Day is opposite night. Day is light. Night is darkness. Now, we haven't looked at the other passages there Zechariah, Joel, Romans, Isaiah. You may look at those at your leisure, but you will find them reinforcing the imagery and the concepts which we have outlined so far in our discussion or presentation. Any questions? about the day of the Lord in this kind of overview uh, paradigm. All right, now, that brings us to Zephaniah <laughs> chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Now, when we examine... Oh, uh, was there someone? I did have a
1: question. Yes, yes the question, go ahead, Scott. Okay. You mentioned the Jewish view. I'm kind of curious in response to the modern Jewish view, which tries to see that... Uh, Tries to claim that you know seventy-eight, you know seventy weeks of Daniel is over with. It, it's the beginning of the Messiah's reign, and they try to separate the Messianic reign from the final consummation of God. Um, is there some specific response in light of that that we can point to more specifically at odds with that particular perspective that you see from, from what you've detailed here, where the Messiah and the Day of the Lord are definitely definitely one of them.
0: Um, I think that that modern expression is a, an expression of a uh, an era which is short of that final era. Am I correctly understanding their explanation?
1: Yeah, they're even, they're even thinking that what happened at the end of the 70 weeks is short of the Messiah coming. So there's a, another problem there. But then... Yeah, this issue about what they mean when the Messiah comes. Is that the same as the consummation? That, that gets confusing to me. I'm not sure. It depends on the author, I guess. But, but we know that the first century, they were divided, they were separating the messianic coming from the final right. resurrection day. Right. So I'm thinking, is there a text where you can say, look, these are definitely dovetailed together as one event. The Messiah comes and, you know, whether it's the Daniel on the clouds of heaven or something like that the dovetails the dovetail two is one the Messiah's well, I, coming has to be the
0: concept. well I think Jesus' appeal to that language of the Son of Man coming in Matthew 25 and so on yeah. I think I think that would be a place that I would uh, look for initially David
1: <clears throat> the first century Jewish view that the Messiah was not divine um, our Lord contends with the Pharisees, I believe it's at Matthew 22, verses 41 <coughs> to 45, and he asks them, who son is Christ, and they say David's son, and he says, how does David then, in the spirit, call him Lord? And they don't have any answer, at least none is recorded in scripture. Um, <coughs> As they In extra-biblical literature, been any uh, reasoning that the um, Jewish scholars would set forth as to um, answer that problem that uh, our Lord posed to the Pharisees?
0: Not that I am aware of, aside to say that they believe it is an extension of the confessional nature of David's psalms. In other words, it's language of exaltation. It is not language of identification. Anything else? All right, now you remember last time when we examined verses 7 to 11, we noted a well-defined literary technique called concatenation, which was the stringing together of these five verses, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, and 11, through a sequence of words that appeared in one verse and then another word at the end of that verse picked up at the beginning of the following verse. Like a chain-link fence, like links in a chain, like crocheted, hooked uh, threads, this was a, a rolling, seamless narrative a narrative of the downgrade of idolatry in uh, Judah and Jerusalem during Zephaniah's age. Now we come to verse 12, and we find in verse 12 that there is no concatenation pattern. The concatenation pattern from 7 to 11 is broken in verse 12, by which I mean there is no word in verse 12 which also occurs in verse 11. In each of the other previous five verses, there was a word in the next verse which picked up on a word in the previous verse. Not so here in verse 12. So the concatenation or the chain link style of the prophet is interrupted here. So we want to come to grips with that. He changes his literary style. All right, now, though he does not concatenate, though he does not Uh, crochet his words together, hook his words together. Though he does not do that, what does he do? I've suggested that he uses reflexive references. Now, what I mean by that is he picks up on language or imagery in verses 12 and 13 that reflect upon what he has said before, though he does not use a specific word to tie into it in each case. So let's think about that for a moment. Let's begin with the phrase in verse 12 it, that reads, at that time, at that time. Now, if this is a reflective reference, that is, it reflecting back upon something he's already indicated, what would you suggest that he is picking up on here, or at least referring to, and where does it occur? At that time... On the day of the Lord's second. On on that day, verse nine and ten. You'll notice that on that day is repeated in verse nine and ten. So, at that time is reflecting to reflecting back upon what is going to happen on that day. And what else is he reflecting back on with this phrase? At that time, at the time of what? At that time, at the time of the coming of the Yom Yahweh. The day of the Lord, back to verse 7 and 8. All right, so the phrase at that time, though it is not concatenated or hooked back into on that day in verse 10, is in fact reflecting upon it. So he is using a phrase which reflects upon language he has already used. All right, now the word Jerusalem appears in verse 12. That's a reflexive reference. It's reflecting back upon what? Marge? Verse 10. 10. Anything else? What do you see in verse 10? Let's go with that. What's it reflecting on, Marge? Yes, the districts of Jerusalem. Very good. Okay. Does that end with verse 10? Are the districts of Jerusalem exhausted with verse 10? No, goes on to verse 11 with the maktesh, or in your New American Standard translated more tar. <clears throat> All right, now verse 12 then is using the name Jerusalem to pick up on the districts of the city which in fact are going to be touched on the day of the Lord's coming. So this is a reflexive though it is not a concatenated reflection. The word punish in verse 12 That's a reflexive word. Where do you see that in the previous sections? It's verse 9. Where else? Verse 8 and 9. And in fact, here, Zephaniah repeats the Hebrew word or the Hebrew verb for punish, which literally means to visit upon. He repeats that same verb here in verse 12, but it's uh, three verses away from his previous use, so it has no concatenation element. And finally, he uses these "all" phrases or upon phrases, on or upon clauses. Where did we see on or upon clauses previously in this book? In your English translation, the only easy place to see this is in verse 9, where he says, those who leap upon or on the threshold. But in verse 8, that phrase, I will punish the princes, literally in Hebrew, as I told you, this Hebrew verb is to visit followed by al, to visit upon. So I will visit upon the princes or upon the royal officials or the bureaucrats, as we indicated last week, for this Hebrew term, sharim. All right, so <clears throat> there are a number of reflexive uh, patterns here in verse 12 that are an additional expansion of what he has said in verses 8, 7 to 11, rather, but without picking up on precise uh, crocheted or hooked patterns, with the one exception of repeating the verb for punish or visit upon, which he used in verses 8 and 9. Now, what about rhetorical symmetries? Not only does he reflect upon previous uh, language and expressions, but he also uses rhetorical symmetries. He uses duplicate all clauses, that is duplicate upon or visit upon clauses. He also uses duplicate "low" or not clauses. And actually, I'll show you that on the second page of the outline. <clears throat> and you'll see it in your English translation. <clears throat> it's the last line, the not clauses of the last line of verse 12. They say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. <clears throat> now, literally, in the Hebrew, the Lord will not do good and not do evil. So there's a double not in that last phrase, which has not been literally translated uh, by the English version, <clears throat> uh, which is acceptable because the repetition just simply continues the negative. But here we want to note that Zephaniah is emphatic about a double not. So he uses duplication with respect to a preposition. He uses duplication in verse 12 with respect to a negative And he has a very interesting association between the two duplicate all clauses, or upon clauses, with the five words that occur between the beginning and end of those two upon clauses. In the Hebrew text, each one of the words, each one of the five words in that clause, ends with a terminal M sound. The terminal M sound. Five words in order that end with a terminal M sound in the Hebrew. What's he doing? He's repeating. He's repeating the same sound. What's he doing? When you repeat the same sound, what are you doing? You're using what technique? Not alliteration. That's what it would be at the beginning of a word. No. Assonance. Assonance. A-S-S-O-N-A-N-C-E. This is an assonantial paradigm. Quite amazing. Five words in a string, all ending with the same M sound in the Hebrew. With
1: that singing, is there any sense of like a
0: dirge kind of sound? No, there's not. I've actually listened to the Hebrew reading from that rabbi in Jerusalem of this. And... It doesn't have a kind of sing-song character to it. However, your ear does pick up that terminal M. All right. Yes, go ahead, Randy.
1: What is assonance in the
0: Repeating the same sound, particularly in the middle or at the end of a, of a phrase. It could be alliterative assonance. That would be at the same at the beginning. However, assonance alliteration is using the initial letter. Question. Yes, Art? Why does he do that? Why is he doing that? <laughs> That's a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to read his mind. Uh, one of the things he's doing is is underscoring. If you'll notice this phrase, <clears throat> and here we get into the du- the difficulty of translating this verse. Excuse me. Which, um, let's address that difficulty, and then we'll, and don't let me forget your question, Art, we'll come back to that question. Every commentator from the early rabbis on has struggled with the translation of this verse. It is extremely difficult to understand why he is doing what he's doing using the ter- forms that he's doing, very strange forms and words. All right, now, as you look at the New American Standard, those of you that have it, the verse reads, I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit. And you have a marginal reading that says thickening on their leaves. All right, now, we, we begin with the double al. And this is where the double "all" appears. That is the double upon. I will visit upon the men, who are something on their something. All right, you see the difficulty. Difficulty is, we don't know whether stagnant is right, we don't know whether lees is right, we don't know whether dregs is right, but here's where the the challenge comes, and here's where the confusion uh, comes. And the scholars from the lowest to the highest who write commentaries on Zephaniah throw up their hands. It's extremely difficult to translate it correctly. So where, where scholars do not uh, have a solution, fools rush in like Denison, Denison right? Okay. Now, uh, let, me, let me once again literally uh, line out, based on the New American Standard, where we are. The New American Standard says punish, which literally means visit upon men. And the word stagnant is a guess on the translator's part in the New American Version. The phrase in spirit does not appear in the Hebrew text. It is their paraphrase of what follows. What literally follows is on their dregs. On their lees, who say in their heart. All right, now, if the word dregs is there, if the word lees is there, what are the dregs? What are the lees? What does that concept, what do those words mean? It, it's it's associated with viticulture, isn't it, Scott? Dregs of, wine. dregs of wine. What is the dregs of wine? Vinegar. Vinegar? Not the vinegar. Vinegar is what you would pour it off, right? What are the dregs, Marge? You're not your head. Well,
1: I'm thinking it's the stuff that's left
0: after you. Pour it's it off. the stuff that's at the bottom of the vat. That if you don't pour it off soon enough, it's going to turn into vinegar. And what's it going to leave in the bottom? Well. No, no, not even going to be that good. It's going to leave a a thickened jelly. See? Thickened jelly, which can also become rock hard. Okay? So the point is that when they uh, ferment wine, they want to tap off the wine at a certain point before it goes to the dregs, and that poisons the whole vat or the whole bottle. Okay. So... If that's the word Zephaniah is actually using here, and the New American Standard Margin actually shows you that, that it's something about the lees, it is something about the dregs. What is he trying to say? The Lord will visit upon the men who are upon the lees, or upon the dregs. Well, now it may be making some sense. So, go to the second page of this outline, and here is my suggested paraphrase. The Lord says, I will visit upon men who, as it were, are thickened or settled on the dregs. Meaning that they're jelly. They're worthless jelly. They're even hardened jelly. Now, how does this fit into what he is saying? Well, notice the next clause. These men who are thickened into hardened jelly or even a gooey mass of of, of worthless jelly, they say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Isn't that the end point of a downward spiral of idolatry that we've seen in verses 7 to 11? Isn't that the end point of a particular pattern of those who say that God will not do good or evil when we look back at verse 6 and we read that they have not sought the Lord or inquired of him? And why have they not sought the Lord or inquired of him? Because they are either apostate or they're atheists. So, of course, they're like dregs. Of course, they are like jelly. Of course, they are like hardened poison. Of course, they are not good wine. Because they have rejected the Lord God in their hearts. They have rejected the Lord God in their lives. They have rejected the Lord God either as apostates. That is, they have turned back from following him, verse 6. Or they have rejected him as atheists. They don't even think he exists. Which brings us then to the sandwich of the du- duplicate negative at the end of this verse, which reads in the Hebrew, "Lo yateiv Yahweh, walo yareah." Not good, Yahweh, not evil. That's the literal reading. You see, you have a sandwich in the duplicate construction between the double negative. Yahweh. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. Zephaniah has sandwiched God between a double negative. He has sandwiched God between a double negative, double negative, because that's who these negativizers are. are, are. They are those that say, God does not do good and he does not do evil. God does not even exist. They have double negative God out of existence. Doubly negated him. He is impotent. He has no power for good or for evil. He is in fact non-existent. Now I'll repeat what I said earlier. What the prophet has done here in brilliant literary style, brilliant sandwich style, is he has held up to ridicule those who in verse 6 and following have suggested that God does not exist, nor is God worth following. For their conclusion, out of their own self-indulgent lives, out of their vaunted arrogance, out of their sinful pride, their conclusion is that God is doubly negated. He is doubly denied. He is doubly negatived. There are still people like that. There is, in that sense, nothing new under the sun. There are those who doubly deny God because they deny him out of existence, or deny him any power in the world. So, these persons who are described in this 12th verse, upon whom God will visit his punishment, are thickened to gel-like dregs. They are congealed into a mass of double denial of Yahweh, whom the prophet sandwiches between their doubly negative assessments in order to graphically portray how they attempt to eliminate God from their consciousness. You're not dealing with an amateur writer here. You are dealing with a brilliant craftsman. And he constructs his phrases in such a way To provide imagery and very graphic description, even of the graphic pattern of his rhetoric. Graphic description of the dregs of apostasy, the dregs of atheism, the dregs of idolatry. Any questions about verse 12? Yes? Isn't this as spectacular as it is because God inspired it? I I can't hear you, but... Isn't this as spectacular as it is because God inspired it? Yes. (laughs) The inspiration of the Holy Spirit is behind the way the text is ordered. I'm not denying that. But you have to have an inspired mind, an inspired background, an inspired education to do it as well. I don't mean that the Holy Spirit was present at every stage of his education or background, well, my point is, he has he has been trained this way, and God heightens that training by bringing it to bear upon His inspired word. So we combine his own educated background brilliance with God uh, 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 over uh, superintending his mind in the recording and writing down of these verses. But when you look at it, you see you, you see the artistry here. You see the power of the rhetoric jumps out at you from the Hebrew construction. Okay. Well, in verse 13, we do have concatenation, but we'll pause and come back to that after the break. Keep in mind that this is our last study for this academic year. Uh, The semester will be over next week, and actually I'll be out of town uh, next week. So, um, We'll come back in September, Lord willing, and we'll pick up where we left off at verse 14 of Zephaniah chapter 1. Enjoy your break. All right, we're at verse 13. And whereas we noted no concatenation between verse 11 and verse 12, there is in fact a concatenation pattern between verse 12 and verse 13. Both of these verses begin with the same Hebrew word, which is a construct, which is translated, you'll notice in verse 12, and it will come about, or it will happen. Now, in verse 13, your translations may read moreover or and now, something like that, but it is actually a repetition in verse 13 of the very same Hebrew phrase that begins verse 12, or Hebrew word that begins verse 12. So we could literally translate verse 12, and it will happen, and verse 13, and it will happen. So we do have a concatenation or a hook pattern which unites verses 12 and 13. This means that verses 12 and 13, signaled by this initial duplication which is perfectly symmetrical, verses 12 and 13 are a discrete rhetorical or literary unit in and of themselves. They do not belong really to the concatenation style or paradigm that's unfolded from verse 7 to 11. They are distinct from it. They do not follow. uh, What follows in verse 14 does not derive from any pattern in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, we actually have three distinct or discrete units in the end of chapter 1, verses 7 to 11, verses 12 to 13, and verses 14 to 18. Now, having noted how it is that we distinguish these, we want to examine what the prophet does in verse 13. He not only ties verse 13 to verse 12 with the the duplication of the very same initial phrase, it will happen, But he also contains a a reflexive reference, which, as he had done in verse 12, goes back to the previous section, verses 7 to 11. You'll notice the word wealth in verse 13. This is a reflexive reference to what would you say it refers in verses 7 to 11. Okay, what do you see in verse 11 that suggests wealth? All the way out to silver. The way out to silver. Remember, we said that the Moqtesh or the Mortar was probably the financial district of Jerusalem at this time. It was the place where uh, merchant trade occurred and where financial transactions took place and perhaps even where the banking industry was. You know, I'm using some terms loosely here, but you get the idea. <coughs> All right, now there's another verse here uh, in verses 7 to 11 that also suggests this kind of wealthy uh, lifestyle. Verse 8, yes, why? Foreign garments? Yes, they're wearing foreign garments. Now, uh, foreign garments had to be imported. Uh, Foreign garments had to be uh, uh, fashion statements. Foreign garments were extremely expensive, extremely expensive. And consequently, that's another indication of the opulent lifestyle that many in Jerusalem at this time had. All right, now, there are rhetorical symmetries here as well. Uh, we noticed those in verse 12. Uh, first of all, we have a duplicate lamed. The duplicate lamed is a preposition, meaning a, the preposition to in English. So both, uh, uh, both, of, both of these uh, prepositions... Are preceded by objects of verbs, devoted to plunder, devoted to desolation. <clears throat> all right. Now, what is devoted to plunder in verse 13? What is devoted to desolation in verse 13? First of all, let's take devoted to plunder. What is devoted to plunder? Well, wealth. wealth is devoted to plunder. Very good. What's devoted to desolation? Their houses. Right. So the prepositional phrase is duplicated with wealth and houses as if to emphasize and to uh, compound the uh, thoroughness with which God is going to judge these uh, lavish and wealthy, uh, (coughs) shall we say, uh, uh, (coughs) builders and uh, gatherers of luxurious wealth. These are the elites of the wealthy class in Jerusalem. Now, as we had in verse 12, we have a duplicate low clause, that is the not clause. And both of those nots in verse 13 are followed by a Hebrew yish word, begins with ysh. So, not plus ysh word. And, you'll, and in your text it's translated, they will not inhabit, they will not drink. And finally, the word houses is duplicated twice In this verse, right now here, the prophet is going back to what he ended the first section, verses seven to eleven, with, namely, the wealth of certain individuals or certain classes in Jerusalem. This wealth will not serve them in the day of the Lord, for at that time their wealth will become plunder, and their houses, their ornate, lavish houses, will become. Desolations. <clears throat> they will not inhabit the rebuilding of the houses that are destroyed, that they attempt to replace them with. <clears throat> they will not replant the vineyards that are destroyed, nor drink the wine from the vineyards that are replanted. <clears throat> this is a portrait of a judgment which uh, leaves this class desolate and plundered. All right, now that's the uh, particular details of the verses. Now, let's go back to verse 12 and ask the question about the representation of Zephaniah the prophet in graphic illustration. How is Zephaniah represented in graphic illustration? We have mentioned this before. This is an image for you to remember. Zephaniah is portrayed in with a lamp with a lamp verse 12 i will search jerusalem with lamps and that raises the question of prophetic narrative biographical interface it is god who is described as searching jerusalem with the lamp in verse 12 that image has been transferred to the prophet in Illustrations of Zephaniah in artwork, etc. It's an image to remember because it captures the persona of the book and the prophet in a portrait that you can hold in your mind and say, "Oh, I know Zephaniah. I know the book of Zephaniah is the book about the lamplight of God and His prophet." So let's think a little bit about this this interface this prophetic narrative interface between God the Lord and the prophet of God the Lord. The Lord takes his light in this 12th verse of chapter 1 and searches idolatrous, vain, self-indulgent, wealthy, opulent, full of lies, violent Jerusalem. This lamp is shedding its light upon this culture, upon this land, upon this nation. And as the Lord God's lamplight shines into the dark districts of this concatenated evil, what is reflected back is idolatry, vanity, self-indulgence, wealth, opulence, serial liars, violence. The light sourced in God the Lord is darkened by the black darkness of sin and the consequences of of sin. This is the lamp which seeks its own divine and supernatural light in reflection. This lamp of God is the lamp which seeks its own divine and supernatural light in reflection. God alone loved and worshipped. Now there is light indeed. The Lord Jesus Christ, the delight of the soul and life, not vain self-centeredness. Now there is light indeed. The Holy Spirit fueled hunger and thirst for the bread of heaven and the streams of living water. Now there is light indeed. The riches of Christ Jesus as the treasure of the heart. Now there. Is light indeed, the glory, the glory light of the triune God as radiant, lavish beauty adorned to all eternity. Now there is light, light indeed. The truth who is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, neither is there any deceit in his mouth. This truth, his truth. Echoing and re-echoing with word after word, verse after verse, book after book of the very truth of heaven. Now, there is light indeed. The gentle tenderness of the Son of God, who binds up the torn and broken, expresses no violence, nor does he do harm to any. Now there, there is light, ineffable light indeed. God takes his lamp and searches for the reflection of the divine and supernatural light. And in Jerusalem in the days of Zephaniah, the only reflection that he receives back is the reflection of darkness, This lamplight condensed and focused in the light of the world. This lamplight condensed and focused in him in whom there is no darkness. The lamp of divine light in the days of Zephaniah reflects the lamp of heaven's eternal glory. The lamp of heaven's eternal sun. This glory light shines in the darkness of Jerusalem, 7th century B.C., and reflects darkness, not light, as it did in the days of Amos. Darkness, not light. Nighttime, not daylight. This lamp of the Lord in the days of Zephaniah will require a new day. This lamp of the Lord in the days of Zephaniah will require a new era. This lamp in the days of the Lord in Zephaniah's time will require a new lamplight. It will take a day in which the light and the lamp are one. It will take an era, an age, in which the light and the lamp are united. In which the light and the lamp are incorporated. In which the light and the lamp are incarnated into a living, breathing, shining light as living breathing, shining as God himself. And, and that light, living, breathing, shining in history, living, breathing, shining light in time and space, even in the time and space of Jerusalem in Judea, That light, living, breathing, shining in history in a new day. When the light of Israel, the light of Israel will be present in her very midst. When the love of God will be incarnated in the new Israel when the glory of joy in walking in the light of that glory for the people of God will mark the end of darkness. The end of darkness and the dawn of the age of light everlasting in him who is everlasting light. The interface between God the searcher who bears the lamp and the prophet who is drawn into the mind of God, into the voice of God, into the life of God, into the light of God. The interface between God and Zephaniah is the union between light source and light reflector, God the source, Zephaniah's word of God, the reflector. There is a better than Zephaniah in this drama. He too is God the source of light. But he is also the voice of God. He is also the life of God. He is also the word of God. And in this one, in this one, interface of God and prophet is complete. It is finished. In this one, light shines in the darkness. And the darkness does not overwhelm it. For the light, the light of the Son of God shines into the dark hearts of idolatry, vanity, sensuality, mendacity. The light of the Son of God shines into dark hearts, declaring, proclaiming, announcing, effecting, let there be light. Let there be light, transforming them, transforming those dwellers in darkness with the glory light of the triune God alone. Not another, the triune God alone. the Glory light of humility, incarnate humility, the glory light of Of chastity, incarnate perfect purity, the glory light of veracity, incarnate truth, no deceit, no deceit. God and Prophet in one person. God of light, prophet of the word of light, joined as one. Light of God, light in the prophet's word of God, incarnate in one being. Indeed, greater than Zephaniah is here. He is even here in this text. He is even here in this book. He is even here in the life of the prophet himself. For he is eschatological God as he is eschatological prophet as he is eschatological light. And as Zephaniah anticipates and foreshadows him, even participates from afar in the benefits of his person and his light. As Zephaniah anticipates and foreshadows, we do not gaze from afar. No. We Do not gaze from afar. We are witnesses to and the blessed possessors of the light of the world, the light of the world who is the Word of God. We are witnesses to and the blessed possessors of The eschatological prophet, the son of God. We are the witnesses to and blessed possessors of the Lord Jesus Christ, Zephaniah's Lord and God. Any questions?
1: Uh, You were saying that that life is reflected in the word of Zechariah. Since you're saying it's reflected in the prophet, you're seeing it reflected in the prophet, in his prophetic role. Are you seeing that at all reflected in his character as one who will prophesy as well? I mean, in Jeremiah, we have one who's willing to suffer, right? Is there anything like that going on here at all? Um,
0: Not explicitly in the text. Okay, now implicitly, you know, one can't say with certainty, but implicitly, one can't imagine Zephaniah getting away with anything less than Jeremiah got away with, particularly when Uriah the prophet is executed by Jehoiakim. Now, I realize it takes us beyond the reign of Josiah, but the era itself is indicative of this darkness, which is pervasive in the culture. Josiah could not cure it, and he could not purge it. So the hostility to the prophets or the indifference to the prophets remains Jeremiah or Zephaniah is projecting that in verses 6 and 8 I think he's indicating that there is this indifference and hostility to God it must trickle down to the prophet of the Lord he must be conformed to that in some sense even though there's no necessary biographical reflection of it here except the futility of this search in verse 12 the futility of this search the prophet is, is exposed to the futility of his message. And he continues to promote it, to preach it, yes. Well, thank you once again for your faithfulness through the year. As I said, we will resume in September, Lord willing. So you're welcome to return and we'll announce the date When we get closer to that point uh, so that you all know the time, it'll still be on Thursday nights from 7.30 uh, to 9. And we will finish the book of Zephaniah and then move on to Philemon. Mm -hmm. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word, which is indeed the light unto our path because it draws us into the path of him who is the light of the age to come. He who has come by his spirit to illuminate our dark hearts, he who has come to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and transform us into the kingdom of his glorious light. We bless you for the revelation and anticipation of that message, even in the Old Testament prophets. We particularly appreciate how you at work in their lives both to imprint your own character and grace upon them and to give to them these words, not only of prophetic judgment, but of prophetic grace. We bless you for the words of Zephaniah. We thank you for the words of Brother Jude and his epistle. We thank you for our studies through this year. We pray, Lord, that in our living we may indeed embrace and reflect this light which has come to us from the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom there is no darkness, but eternal light of glory. We bless you with all the saints of old, we bless you with the angels above, we bless you, O Lord, with those who love you in sincerity presently, we bless you now and forevermore through Jesus Christ, your Son, the real and true. Light of the world.
1: Amen.